Welcome to In This Issue podcast for DTB. This is volume 49, number 5, for May 2011. My name is Alex Taylor, and I'm here today with Ike Hianacho, the DTB editor. Hello. Hello. And David Fizakli, the DTB deputy editor. Hello. We're discussing, as I said, the May issue, and the editorial for this issue is PPIs, too much of a good thing. Ike, would you like to discuss this a little with us? Sure. PPIs stands for proton pump inhibitors, uh, which are a class of very commonly used drugs work by reducing uh, acid secretion in the stomach and therefore have various uh, uses, uh, including as part of the treatment of, of stomach ulcers and acid reflux in the stomach. The editorial, though, asks whether this widespread use um, needs perhaps to be tempered a little by the increasing evidence that PPIs are not necessarily as safe as people have believed them to be hitherto. There seems to be evidence of relatively rare but uh, important um, side effects that might make people a little more wary about the idea that PPIs can be used with impunity and the editorial really asks that question. What are, the, what are some of the side effects? Well, some of the newer uh, effects which, which have been related to, to PPIs include particularly increasing uh, the risk of fracture. Oh. Uh, uh, again, I must stress this is the evidence suggests that this is a low risk, but it's there and clearly an important thing if it happens. There's also evidence that PPIs might increase the likelihood of, of somebody developing a condition called Clostridium difficile infection. So that's uh, a cause of, among other things, uh, diarrhoea. And uh, PPIs seem to make that more likely. Uh, the, other, the other one that's, again, probably just worth mentioning is the um, slight increased risk of, of pneumonia. Um, so that's been found in, in patients who've been treated with, with PPIs. And I guess all these together, the risks are small. Yeah. But when you look at the numbers of people who are taking these drugs, I think we quote in the, in the paper, it's about uh, 9 million prescriptions a quarter. So if you multiply that up over the course of a year, that's 36 million prescriptions. So they are widely used. Yes, and the message certainly isn't that that, that, that use needs to, needs to stop or is inappropriate necessarily. It's just be aware that actually these drugs do have potentially important severe side effects. So probably for those those people who are have been on them for a long time or are on particularly high doses, it's a good point to say actually is this treatment should it be carried on if it is fine, but if it is if there's a time to stop it then maybe this is a prompt to to review those those cases and say well, you know, maybe we'll try without it for a while. Is that the alternative just to completely stop? It's reducing the dose and it's trying other drugs of that have a similar action. Um, again, depending on you know, some of the cl- some of the side effects we've talked about are common to other drugs that do similar things. So mm-hmm. it's not as simple as that, but it just is perhaps a warning shot to say these aren't as straightforward a, a class of drugs as we first thought. That's very interesting. So the DTB Select for this month, there is 10 different articles. I've seen one that's caught my eye. It's New Food Allergy Guidance for Children and Young People. David, could you just tell me a bit about this? Thank you. Yes. Um, well, food allergy common, uh, common problem. Uh, lots of people describe what might be food intolerance or food food allergies. Uh, but Nice National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence have published a guideline that particularly focuses on this for children and young people, and really give a guidance to 
to all those involved with their care about what you should do to try and establish whether this is true uh, a food allergy, how to diagnose it, what sort of tests to avoid. Because I think you see lots of tests advertised that people can buy, people can try to try and pinpoint whether their, their child has got some sort of food allergy. Um, so nice try and give some advice on which ones are the ones to go for and which ones are the ones that probably should be should be avoided. And then some standards for you know, what should be involved in the care of care of these patients. I know when I was a child they used to just say cut everything out and start from there. Is that basically what they're saying as the main guide here again or is it changing? Uh, I don't think it's as drastic as that. I mean I think for cutting out whole classes of food you really have to have good evidence that the child is allergic uh, or potentially allergic to, to one of those classes of food. The, f- the focus of the guidance really is, is, I suppose, to attack that kind of broad brush mentality and be specific about making sure that both the advice and the actual intervention is, is properly targeted. All right. I, would you elaborate on one that, another one that's caught my eye called increased risk of death linked to diabetes? Diabetes is a disease which increases the risk of dying prematurely. We've known that for a long time. But the focus has been primarily on the vascular risks. However, there's, there's now new evidence that actually that diabetes has a lot of non-vascular risk. And that's clearly important because if uh, healthcare professionals focus exclusively on the, on the cardiovascular problems, mm-hmm. they clearly could end up shortchanging the, the patient in terms of looking at or considering other risks as well. And we're talking about some cancers, for example, and, and other conditions. So we're not talking about trivial conditions. We're talking about things which uh, having an awareness of clearly makes a big difference. Okay. Well, let's move on. Let's move on to our first article for May issue, which is Managing Diffuse Esophageal Spasm. Should we start with you, David, just to kick this one off? Yes, yeah, an interesting article, particularly around a condition that is probably quite difficult both to, to diagnose and to manage. Um, we go quite a bit into the, into the background of this. Probably easiest to start by calling it a sort of hypercontractile motility disorder, um, which makes it sound as though we know a lot about it, but it is actually quite difficult to, to get to the bottom of. People who've got this condition often present with symptoms such as, as chest pain, and dyspepsia, and the chest pain takes them into, you know, the, the root of is this cardiovascular disease? Is this something else that's going on? It's not necessarily an instant uh, recognition that this is a uh, gastrointestinal disorder or an esophageal disorder. And it seems from what we present here that people can bounce around a bit before any kind of firm diagnosis is made. It's one of the conditions, I suppose, that people should keep in mind when somebody has chest pain and and as you've described a cardiovascular condition has been ruled out Um, in itself diffuse esophageal spasm seems to be a a relatively rare condition but if you look at people with non-cardiac chest pain it accounts for quite a lot of those people. And we go through in the in the article sort of things you can look out for typical symptoms but again symptomology is not a way of diagnosing it. It's not clear just from you know, how patients present and the symptoms they present with that that's the, the underlying underlying condition. Oh, that's a very good explanation. Thank you very much for that. Well, we've got the last article that we'll head on to now, and it's nanomedicines. Um, what are they? Ike, would you briefly like to run through this one? I suppose nanomedicines is one of these terms that bounce around in, in medicine that you find yourself not really understanding. Essentially, a nanomedicine is is a medicine at the nanometer scale. And 
that smallness, that, that, that size, actually gives them properties, depending on, on exactly how they're constructed, which, which can actually facilitate their role as medicines. So, for example, medicines of a certain size might be able to enter certain biological structures and, and therefore get to a site of action much more easily than, than bigger structures. What's, what seems to be at the moment is there's no one clear definition of what a nanomedicine is. No, Some no, it seems right. to be around delivery systems, but there wasn't one overall definition of what a, no. a nanomedicine looks like at the moment. No, but the, the purpose of the article is really to, to give a, a state of play assessment, really, about what nanomedicines are at the moment. There are relatively few, although there are some examples, but there's a, a whole potential which is discussed and debated and talked about about how these things might be used in the future to some it is kind of the, the science fiction based picture at the moment but it may come as a surprise that there are some commonly used medicines which actually do have nanoparticles within them there's also an update this month on artemisinins and malaria treatment in the uk uh, do you want to quickly go over this one, David, just to update us? It's just a very brief update on our, our previous article, which is drawing attention to further evidence that's been published since our, our article was produced. Well, that's us then for today. Um, if you'd like to find out any more information, please go to our website at dtb.bmj.com and please feel free to send any feedback to our inbox at dtbeditor at bmjgroup.com. All right, thanks a lot.